Throughout this series, I have been telling you, and we have been learning, of Satan's deceptive character. We have been learning about Satan's desire to keep Christians, believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, as weak and ineffective by getting them bogged down in all sorts of stuff that has nothing to do with the Christian life, all sorts of conflict. We also learned that Satan was and is completely defeated on the cross, and how every time you and I apply that victory of Jesus on the cross, we keep the devil on the run. Today I want to show you how the courts of heaven have already passed a sentence on Satan. Right now, Satan is waiting for his arrest and arraignment. Uh, Right now, Satan and his demons have been condemned and sentenced. Uh, Right now, Satan is very aware that the day of his arrest is imminent. Right now, Satan is living on borrowed time as a fugitive. Right now, he knows that at any time, Christ could come back and send him and his demons into the lake of fire. Satan senses that his time is short. And that is why the flurries of activities, his massive work around the globe, has been intensified like we've never seen before. In fact, the Bible teaches that immediately before the return of Christ, there's going to be a tidal wave of deception. There's going to be a tidal wave of rebellion across the world. In fact, Jesus warned us, and He told us that in John 12, 31 and 32. Now the time for judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. But I, when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men to myself. What is Jesus telling us is this, that on the cross, Satan got a foretaste of defeat. But it's only a foretaste. It's just a foretaste. For in His first coming, the Lord Jesus Christ bound demonic forces from the lives of some. But in His second coming, He's going to release all of His children from their infirmities. On His first coming, Jesus raised few people from the dead. But on His second coming, He will raise all of His children to eternal life with Him. On His first coming, Jesus gave some power to His children to defeat Satan. But in His second coming, He will give us all power and all authority over Satan's oppression and attack. Now, amen belongs here. In Matthew 13, Jesus gives us a clue as to the future arrest and incarceration of Satan. Verses 41 and 42, The Son of Man will send out his angels, and they will weed out of his kingdom everything that causes sin and all who do evil. And then they will throw them into the fiery furnace, where there be weeping and gnashing of teeth. A few facts about hell. They all come from the Word of God. The Bible gives us really snapshots, if you like, about hell. Most of them come from the Lord Jesus Christ, who coexisted with the Father before all worlds, who was there from no beginning and has no end. He knows heaven and He knows hell. He was in heaven. He came from heaven. And in Matthew 25, He tells us about those who will be welcomed into 
eternity with Him in heaven. That those who will end up with Satan and his demons in eternal torment, verse 41, then He will say to those on His left, Depart from Me, you who are cursed into the eternal fires prepared for the devil and his angels. The same picture of hell found in the true story that Jesus tells in Luke chapter 16, beginning at verse 19, about the two individuals who die. But during their lifetime, one lived for God, the other lived for self. One was so self-focused, he had no room for God. And so they ended up in two different places for eternity. But then John the Revelator, in Revelation 20, tells us about the same agony and pain and the lake of fire. Hell is not a state of mind. Hell is not a figment of imagination. Hell is not a harebrained scheme. <laughs> no. The Bible tells us, in fact, about hell 21 times in the New Testament. All passages indicate the state of suffering and the state of pain, and it's going to go on forever and ever and ever. It will have no end and no escape. Look with me, please, at the several characteristics the Bible tells us about hell. The first thing the Bible said, it is a place of confinement. It's a place of confinement. Matthew 18, 21 to 35. It is not like a physical prison. You see, a physical prison only holds its captives physically. That's all a physical prison can do. A physical prison cannot capture the mind or the heart or the soul. Earthly prisons can never confine the spirit. In fact, the Bible tells us that when Paul and Silas were beaten until they were bleeding, and then they were put into prison, hurting, in pain, and yet their spirits were soaring in praise and adoration and worship, so much so that the prison shook. We all know stories of hostages and prisoners of war that were held against their will physically, but their spirit soared. You see, hell locks up not just the body, but also the imagination and the thoughts and the creativity and the hope, and it does it permanently. There is no escape. There is no hope of early release. It is a place of confinement. Secondly, it's a place of utter darkness. In Matthew twenty-two thirteen, the man who went into the wedding feast without the wedding gown, what is that wedding gown that the host handed to people? That is the gown, the robe of the righteousness of Jesus Christ. None of us, no matter how much we do, can ever earn heaven. None of us can earn eternal life. Only the righteousness of Jesus Christ that is given to us, imputed to us. We did not earn it. We did not work for it. We have no righteousness of our own, only the righteousness of Jesus Christ. That is the robe that Jesus is talking about in this story about this man. He thought he was religious. He thought he was a church member. He thought that he can make it to heaven based on his good work. And then the Bible said he didn't. As a matter of fact, Jesus said the king asked the servants to cast him out into the utter darkness. It is a place of utter darkness. Jesus said the same thing in Matthew 25, 30. Try to imagine with me a place where there is no morning, 
or evening. No twilight, no glorious sunsets. Oh, but that darkness is also moral and spiritual darkness. It is a place of confinement, it's a place of darkness. Third, it's a place of suffering. Luke 16, which I already referred to, this man who lived for self, this man who had no room for God, this man who had no room for the children and faith servants of God, this man who had no room for one else but himself, a few seconds in hell, he cried out, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus. This is Lazarus who sat at his door, to whom he paid no attention. Send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I'm in agony in this fire. Imagine with me the tongue that cursed God, the tongue that rejected Jesus Christ and forbade Him from being mentioned in public, the tongue that spoke blasphemy, the tongue that mocked God's Word, the tongue that said, I will live my life my way, that tongue was on fire all the time and for eternity. And there's no relief in sight, not for a second. And that same man who was in hell only for a few seconds, he turned out to be an evangelist. He said, okay, if there's no hope for me in this suffering, please send someone from the dead. And if Lazarus would rise from the dead, my brothers may hear his message and may not come to this place. And Abraham said, if they're not going to believe the Word of God, they're not even going to believe somebody rising from the dead. It is a place of confinement. It's a place of darkness. It's a place of suffering. It's a place of loneliness. George Bernard Shaw, who is known for his zany comments and statements, once said that hell is filled with some interesting people. Well, just to give you a partial list of those interesting people— from Revelation 21.8. Cowardly, unbelieving, vile, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, liars. Hardly the kind of people you want to invite to your birthday party. Be that as it may, in hell there is no companionship. There is no fellowship. It's a place of darkness. It's a place of complete isolation of each individual. It's a place of solitary confinement. Remember, it's utter darkness. He can't see anyone. He can't see anything. And beloved, you now can understand with stakes so high why Satan is fighting hard in that invisible war. But the day is coming. Thank God the day is coming, and maybe sooner than any of us think. Well, his fight is going to be over. And that is why I don't want to end the sermon on that negative note and make no mistake about it. Hell is extremely negative. But how would you know the positive unless you know the negative? So I want to end by talking about heaven. For heaven is where the believers will be for eternity. Heaven will give you greater motivation to conquer your enemy. Heaven will give you greater motivation to defeat Satan and to stand in victory with Jesus Christ and in the power of His blood. But I want to tell you, heaven is a place I can't wait to go to. That's my home. That's my home. For everything the Bible says about heaven makes me rejoice. As teaching about hell literally tear me apart, thinking about heaven makes me soar into the highest heaven. I'm so thankful to the Lord 
that is going to be my final destination, and it's going to be my eternal home. But the same lie about hell, they apply it also to heaven. They say, oh, heaven, that's just a state of mind. Heaven is just an abstract idea. Heaven is just wishful thinking. Heaven is only a figure of speech. (laughs) No and a million no's. Jesus, who came from heaven, told us that heaven is a place. In John chapter 14, verse 2, when Jesus was talking to his disciples and he said, I go and prepare a place for you. And when I prepare the place, I come and take you with me. The word he uses, topos, in the Greek means a locale, a physical place. In Acts chapter 7, verses 56, when Stephen, the first Christian martyr, was being stoned to death, just before he died, he looked up and he said, Look, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Revelation 4.1, John said, I looked and there before me was a door standing open in heaven. You don't have a door in a figment of imagination. There is a door, a physical door. Now let me tell you what the Bible said about heaven very quickly. The Bible said that it is a place of uninterrupted fellowship. Uninterrupted fellowship with God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, the triune God. When D.L. Moody was dying, they asked him, what are you expecting to do when you get to heaven? He said, I'm going to spend the very first 1,000 years gazing at Jesus. Gazing at Jesus. Listen, I'm not excited about the pearly gates or the streets of gold, whatever they are. The Bible says all the things you hold dear, all the things that you're grabbing into, they're going to be worthless in heaven. You're going to be stepping on them. Like Moody, I don't care about the pearly gate or the streets of gold, but I'm going to spend eternity gazing at the one who loved me so, the one who died for me, the one who redeemed me, the one who saved me, the one who overturned my every sorrow into smile, the one who overturned my every pain into pleasure, the one who overturned every disappointment into an appointment. That's who I'll be focusing on in heaven. And that is why Paul said in 1 Corinthians thirteen twelve, Now we see but a poor reflection, as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Face to face. Heaven is going to be a place of uninterrupted fellowship with God. Secondly, we shall rest from the battle. Listen to Revelation 14, 13. Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord. From now on, they will rest from their labor, and their deeds will follow them. Question, what is that rest from our labor? Well, some people think that uh, heaven is going to be a place of endless laziness, just lying about, doing nothing. Others think, That we just be hanging on fluffy clouds, strumming our harp. (laughs) No, 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 no. These are false concepts. These are false concepts. We will be working in heaven. The Bible said we're going to be reigning and ruling with Christ in heaven. The rest that he's talking about, that the rest that we're going to have in heaven, is a rest from the spiritual battles. It's a rest from fighting temptations. It's the rest from fighting the devil. It's the rest from fighting the world that is constantly trying to squeeze us into its mold. That's the rest. It will be a place of uninterrupted fellowship 
is a place we will rest from our battles. Thirdly, it will be a place of serving the Lord. Revelation 22, 3, no longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and the Lamb will be in the city, and His servants will be serving Him. Ah, we'll be serving Him. Oh, what a joyful service this is going to be. What a service with enthusiasm and excitement. It's tireless service. It's not going to be a service that accompanied with fatigue and burnout and tiredness. No, it will be out of deep gratitude to the one who redeemed us. Matthew 25, 23 says, We will be serving by reigning and ruling with Him. And that is why Jesus will say, To every faithful believer, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Amen belongs here. Heaven is a real place. Heaven is a place of uninterrupted fellowship. Heaven is a place of rest from our spiritual battles and wars. Heaven is a place of service. But heaven also is a place of full knowledge. We'll have full knowledge. 1 Corinthians 13 again, verse 12. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. Someone came and asked me the question at the end of the service. It's the age, all questions that people ask for years and generations, hundreds of years, thousands of years. If God knew that Satan was going to rebel against him and he could have stopped him, why didn't he? If God knew that Adam and Eve were going to rebel against Him and He could have stopped them, why didn't He? Why, 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 why bad things happen to good people? Why diseases, wars, and suffering? And why earthquakes and hurricanes? And the answer is, I don't know. I know so I have some ideas, but we don't know. None of us do. None of us can answer that perfectly. And if we can answer that perfectly now, we wouldn't look forward to heaven, would we? <laughs> but there we're going to have... Full knowledge, full knowledge, the day is coming when I'm going to know why. I won't even have to ask because I'll become immediately aware and have the knowledge, eternal perspective and eternal knowledge, a place of uninterrupted fellowship, a place of rest from our spiritual battles, a place of serving the Lord, a place of knowledge. It is also a place of continuous glory. Paul lists all the sufferings that he's been through. He's been scourged. He's been been whipped. He's been, I mean, he's bled almost to death. He's stoned, nearly died, shipwreck, hunger, and thirst. I mean, sleepless nights and all these things that he's going through. And yet, listen carefully, in 2 Corinthians 4.17, he weighs all of that suffering that he's going through on one side of the scale— And then he weighs the glory of Jesus Christ can be revealed in us. And he said, hands down, you can't compare them. Now let me read you the verse. For our light and momentary trials. Wait a minute, Paul. Light? You've been whipped until you bled from every pore of your body, stoned almost to death. Light? What is he talking about? I mean, the average Christian in America today, when he gets a headache, he thinks the beginning of the tribulation. (laughs) Light and momentary trials are achieving for us an eternal glory 
that far outweighs them all. Amen. See, the word glory here means the revelation of the character of God. The revealing, fully revealing of the character. Just think about this. I mean, we know the character of God in theory. We, we know a little glimpse, tiny glimpse of it. But then it's going to be fully revealed. What a glorious day that's going to be. Finally, it will be a place of constant worship. Constant worship. A prominent Englishman who was a member of the House of Lords by the name of Lord Riddle. Lord Riddle grew up in one of those deadly ritualistic Anglican churches, and he went to a deadly ritualistic Anglican school. And here's what he said. He said, to me, heaven was a very frightening concept. I did not want to go there at all. Listen why. He said, I pictured heaven as a place where time would be a perpetual 11 o'clock service. (laughs) I would be afraid too. (laughs) From which there's no escape. And then he continued. He said, it was a horrible nightmare that made me an atheist for 10 years. But then he read the book of Revelation, and all of that changed. If you're planning to go to heaven, give me a shout. God bless you. Well, you better, you better get ready. You better get ready. You better loosen up. Get ready to shout. Get ready to open your mouth and sing, for that's what we're going to be doing for eternity.